0: You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Julie Larson Brisher, science and technology editor for Meeting Place Magazine. Welcome to episode eight of Meeting Pod, where we're talking meat quality, safety, and shelf life with Dr. Peter Termina, president of Aetna Consulting, which helps food companies validate food safety and quality systems, prevent recalls and regulatory issues, and solve challenges. Of course, our Meeting Place readers will recognize Peter from his many years working in the meat processing industry, either from early on in his career as senior research scientist with John Morrell & Company, or later as Director of Science and Food Safety and Quality with meat processing giant, Smithfield Foods. During his nearly 10 years at Smithfield, Peter was responsible for food safety, quality assurance, science, shelf life, microbiology research, and testing for 36 plants and co-packers producing processed and fresh meat products, ready-to-eat meals, seasonings, and pet food, which generated $13 billion in revenue annually. He's also a process authority who's designed and overseen hundreds of validation studies for a variety of foods, from beverages, prepared meals, and acidified foods, to meats, seafood, and pet food, as well as for novel and non-thermal processing technologies. And in 2019, he was named to the North American Meat Institute's Appendix A and B Core Working Group, which aims to close the science gaps in USDA's cooking and cooling guidance documents. While Peter could share his scientific experience on any number of food science and technology topics, today we're diving in to get his takeaways from the new book. Food Safety and Quality Based Shelf Life of Perishable Foods, edited by Peter and another well known meat industry veteran, Margaret Hardin. In the book, just released by Springer, contributors address shelf life as a key factor in determining how food is distributed and consequently where and when different food products are available for consumption. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Peter. I'm delighted to have you as a guest on the podcast today.
1: Well, thank you, Julie. It's great to be with you on Meeting Pod. And I look forward to our conversation.
0: Right. Well, now, I think that a book that provides insight into the science of shelf life determination of perishable foods is really timely, especially right now during a global pandemic when there are unexpected disruptions in the supply chain. Consumers are still a little bit skittish about grocery shopping and dining out. And so getting shelf life measurement right seems more important than ever, both from a quality and a safety standpoint. Do you think that the pandemic has spurred researchers to do more work in the field of shelf life determination?
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question because uh, everything we think about now is obviously in the context of what's going on with COVID, but I don't see firsthand any evidence that people are working more on shelf life because of the pandemic, so per se. However, I could envision that people are exploring different ways to package meat and poultry to make it maybe appear a little less, as you said, you know, suspect or as far as the risk of transfer of the virus to them while shopping or preparing the food. So I guess it could be that R&D departments are exploring ways to package things differently and that could impact how they're assessing the shelf life of the product, how they're validating the shelf life. But yeah, it's interesting times, no doubt.
0: Yeah. Well, do you think anything has changed in the past decade or so in terms of what foodborne pathogens or spoilage organisms really are of Mm -hmm. most concern when it comes to shelf life of perishables, especially meat and poultry products?
1: As far as the pathogens, I don't see a lot of change in the past decade with regards to shelf life. I mean, it's still primarily Listeria monocytogenes and Clostridium botulinum, non proteolytic that will grow at refrigeration temperatures under anaerobic conditions. And to some extent, maybe there's some products where you're looking at some of the mesophilic pathogens like Salmonella and E. coli, but Probably it's more focused on the psychotrophs. And years and years ago, I was observing Yersinia enterocolitica and other species of Yersinia in raw meat and poultry, just in my laboratory days. And I think that's one that I've always kind of pointed to and said, hey, why isn't anybody paying attention to this one? What is it doing during refrigerated shelf life? Because it is psychotrophic and it is there. So as far as anything that's changed in that space, there's still really no activity, I guess you could say, in terms of exploring how that pathogen is doing in refrigerated products. There may be some researchers looking at it from time to time, but I don't think it gets enough attention.
0: So what are the main pathogens and spoilage organisms that people really look at right now in terms of shelf life?
1: So for the shelf life book, my co-editor, Margaret Harden, wrote the chapter on pathogens, and it covers, of course, Listeria and Clostridium and Bacillus and some others. We don't really have a specific chapter to look at all the spoilage organisms because we felt like that would have been redundant to some other books within this series in Springer, the food microbiology series. There was an entire book devoted to spoilage and i was a co-author on one of those chapters Uh, i think margaret probably was too so we didn't really get into that in the book but certainly that's where all the interest is these days people are looking to extend the shelf life of meat and poultry as much as safely possible as much as can be wholesomely sold and distributed and consumed and so yeah, I mean, these spoilage organisms, we're learning more and more about them. We're learning how they interact and how their populations shift and are in flux throughout the preparation, processing, packaging, and shelf life of meat and poultry. And that's really where a lot of opportunity is. Because traditionally, I think, or historically, you know, in the industry and in research and development. Products have been developed in a way to just knock back a total plate count, if you will, or aerobic plate count. Nowadays, I think we're getting a little more sophisticated as an industry and as a those interested in meat and poultry safety and quality. And, and we're looking more for specifics. Okay, instead of total plate count, what should we target? Should we target lactic acid bacteria? Should we target Pseudomonas? Or what can we design into the product or the package that will target those specific organisms?
0: Well, that's a good point. I mean, in terms of determining shelf life of meat and poultry products, are there any new techniques or technologies that have advanced our capabilities? And and are we better able to interpret data now to make shelf life determinations?
1: Yes, I think the techniques and technology has advanced considerably. Obviously we have metagenomics now that enables the entire microbial profile of a sample to be identified. There was a sort of a in our field of applied meat microbiology, there was a study published, it's probably been gosh, maybe five or eight years. I don't know. I think it was University of Nebraska. And that one was probably the first one where they took the whole genome of the microbiome of the the sausage and they tracked it through the shelf life and showed how different organisms increased in prevalence and decreased throughout that shelf life and what that meant in terms of the product quality. Since then, there have been a number of publications on this and there's been a little bit of application of it in the industry usually companies that are large would be the only ones that would be investing in the internal laboratory capabilities to do that as far as shelf life most are probably going outside to a third-party laboratory that, that has those special capabilities to use metagenomics to look at of food and how it shifts in the microflora through the shelf life. Beyond that, you know, the traditional plate counting, it's still going to be with us. It's still what's easiest to use in the facilities, in the plants. It's the easiest to interpret, I guess, but it doesn't give enough resolution to what truly is behind the the quality in the shelf life.
0: Well, let's go back to something you were talking about earlier because I always think that when we talk about extending the shelf life of perishable mm-hmm. products it's a holy grail right it's <laughs> companies are looking for answers how to lengthen that use by or best by date but still maintain the product quality and the safety you know parameters so mm-hmm. do you have any advice about ingredients or packaging types or advanced processing tech that might help industry extend shelf life <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is what everybody's after, it seems, and understandably so. Even a day or two for a short shelf life product can mean the world in terms of the margin or the return on the investment in making a new product line. But yeah, I think that my thing I always tell companies and individuals working in this field is to not look at it as one silver bullet is going to get you the shelf life you desire. That. It's a holistic approach that works. You have to think about the raw material supply quality. You have to have the right processing techniques to knock down the levels of organisms present to maintain the stability of the lipids and the proteins and and everything else that might comprise the product during processing. You've got to protect that. Once that's done, the package itself has an important influence on the outcome of the shelf life, whether it's atmosphere within a package or the package film and the moisture vapor transmission rate or the oxygen transmission rate. Beyond that, there could be some processing aids that could be employed prior to packaging or or in concert with it. There could be activated packaging that could work to preserve that product a little longer. Once that's sort of designed into everything and produced, there's the cold chain the cold chain has to be maintained through the you know distribution network and then ultimately until it reaches a consumer otherwise everything will fall apart because temperature is probably the biggest factor for these perishable foods
0: yeah i was wondering that do you have any examples though of where a certain type of packaging works better for some meat and poultry product versus another and why that is. Does active packaging work for all types of meat and poultry products or is it better suited for a particular type at this point?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question. I mean, I think when you get into different products, you have to look at what the formulation is, what is the composition of the of the protein, and and then if you want to try an activated packaging is it a skin tight is it a vacuum package or is it a modified atmosphere there are different benefits to a modified atmosphere versus a vacuum package and there's different considerations from a food safety standpoint as well when you create an anaerobic environment so am not sure that's a great answer but I guess I'll fall back to what we often like to say is that it depends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Well, and earlier you mentioned I think the microbiome or genomics mm-hmm. Part. And I find that really interesting. I know that from the book discusses the microbiome and implications of microbial ecology and quantification in food products. Can you give us a little more insight into genomics and what was in the book description as, quote, changing dogma of meat shelf life, unquote, which I found a, a rather beautiful turn of phrase, actually. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a great title. Uh, I think Ian Jensen and John Sumner and Paul Vandela and Mandeep Carr wrote that chapter, and that's a great title. And they were looking at the perspective from Australian beef and how things evolved in terms of, you know, when that sort of market developed initially and how they were assessing shelf life and how they had to really move mountains to get that product to North America where a huge opportunity was and other places throughout the world as well. And it's an interesting walk through that, that sort of evolution of evaluating and shelf life, improving shelf life in that type of red meat beef products and how today we're at a point where, you know, a total plate count of 10 to the six, what does that really mean? Does that mean that the product does not meet quality attributes And I think that a lot of us fall in the camp that that seems a little bit arbitrary. If it's 10 to the 6 of a heterofermentative lactic acid bacterium, yeah, that could mean that you've produced or that meat has been essentially uh, broken down and D-lactic acid is going to be present and it's going to have a lower pH and that's going to affect your meat proteins and the way they're configured and the eatability of that product will be less desirable it'll be less desirable flavor and texture genomics or the microbiome analysis can tell you that that 10 to the 6 cfu per gram or 1 million cells per gram what is in there is it comprised mostly of a homo fermentative lactic acid bacterium that does not produce quite the amount of byproducts that are undesirable or is it comprised of things that are you know maybe Bro- brocothrix or Pseudomonas or some of those that do have some sensory degradative byproducts in their while well, when they grow. So anyway, I guess to answer your question, it's these tools can help us un- interpret what we used to look at, which is just whether the population is high or low. And now we can look in more detail at what's there and make an assessment. It's not always the case that maybe it seems like oh, a million cells per gram is, oh, that must be bad. Maybe not in every case, especially for a product or a raw meat or a poultry item that's going to be cooked, so...
0: Well, hey, you know, speaking of cooking, <laughs> I cannot let this opportunity pass by without picking your brain a little bit about your work on the Appendix A and B revisions. So I'm just going to toss a couple of questions your way. One is a member of the core working group. Have you seen progress in terms of closing the identified science gaps through research that's been going on? And second, how do you think the revisions, if accepted by FSIS, will impact or benefit industry in real life application?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that I've not been a part of a working group that has been as focused and, I guess, productive towards a key issue. And we, Katie Rose McCullough at the Meat Institute and Some of the others had this idea to split us up into half of us working on Appendix A, half of us working on Appendix B with scientists in the room. Some of us just couldn't resist. Even though we were assigned one, we'd want to work on the other at times. But at any rate, the research, I think, that came out of that has been underway for a number of months now. And from what I hear and some of the preliminary reports I've seen, Show that the data are going to be supportive of both of our initiatives. And that was to make it more science based, make it more practical and the application of it less focused on predictive modeling, for instance, and using actual data generated in meat systems. So I think that, you know, we're still kind of waiting to see as far as Appendix B. Last I heard in December of 2020 was that it's under review. At this point, it's in the clearance process in terms of what USDA is going to come back with their revision of Appendix B. And so we'll see. I think that they were very open to hearing what the working group had to say. They gave us uh, time to provide our scientific perspective to show some data. And I think that, I hope that the outcome will be more practical and applicable to the industry and actually you know, make it so that the industry is producing safe products and can show the necessary validation of that. I think the appendix, both appendices, had the goal to provide all the industry could need to fall back on those appendices as their scientific support. And I think what happened was, in all the effort FSIS took to do that, there were just little gaps here and there and issues that. Led to industry kind of being kind of at an impasse in a lot of ways. They couldn't actually achieve some of the safe harbors that were put in these. And so I think with the working group, the additional research data is being generated or has been generated and is under review. So we hope that there'll be the new revisions will be, you know, more in line with what the validation work has shown.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know Meeting Place, we're really interested in continuing to report on this issue because it's so important to the industry and I appreciate you giving us some comments on that right now but I want to say thanks again Peter really so much for you really given our meeting pod listeners a lot of good quality advice with a long shelf life <laughs> you know I had to get my pun in there
1: <laughs> yeah well let's hope it holds up you know who knows what new technology will be developed that could do away with <laughs> everything <laughs> The hunger yeah. hats on at this point
0: yeah and listeners you can get free chapter previews from the book we've talked about in this podcast Food Safety and Quality-Based Shelf Life of Perishable Foods, edited by Peter Terramina and Margaret Harden at Springer.com. If you'd like to know more about Peter's expertise and work, please visit Consulting.com. That's E-T-N-A Consulting.com. I also encourage you to visit MeetingPlace.com, where you can access our online technical article series to read about a range of science and technology topics written by our network of expert contributors. And get access to the full list of Meeting Pod shows. Thanks again, Peter. I hope you'll join me for another podcast soon.
1: Thanks, Julie. It was great meeting with you.
0: Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify. Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and follow meeting place and altmate magazines on social media or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.